it awesome to be in relationship with God? No matter where we're at, we just come to him. And he's waiting. He's there. He's always there. Let's pray. Lord, what a tremendous joy it is to gather with your people, to realize that throughout this world, you've got your believers, those who've been called by grace, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who are worshiping you from the heart. God, we ask that you would be exalted in our midst. And Lord, as we now come and open up your book, we're asking that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would once again take distraction from us, fill us with your Spirit, give us understanding, compel our wills, fuel our lives. Help us to walk in your grace. And so we pray expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So good to see you. I want you to know I'm so looking forward to being back with you. Uh, My family and I enjoyed some just amazing quality time uh, together as a family in Costa Rica. Anybody been to Costa Rica? Okay, so it's not the lights, okay? I've got this like red tone here. That's because I was out on the beach a little bit and forgot to put the sunscreen on, but I'm okay. It was really awesome. The people in Costa Rica, really nice, and God is at work. I mean, heard some really amazing stories and really enjoyed my time there. Um, You know, we're uh, coming to a place where, like Brian has already told you, like, it's been a long time. I don't know if it's been that long. I'm like, what's wrong with this guy? And then I realized it's me that it's taking that long. But yeah, a lot changed when the pandemic hit. And when that pandemic hit, we pivoted. There were significant needs that we needed to address. And I remember that Friday night when that decision was made that we've got to make some changes, not only using, utilizing technology in ways that we had started to use and were prepared to take the next step, but put it in motion for that Sunday but to address the needs of what it would look like to walk through all the uncertainties of a pandemic. And then on top of that, all that was going on in our country with the civil unrest. And so what happened is we went through a, like various series. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Inception, but you know where you got a dream within a dream within a dream? But that's kind of how it felt like for me. I mean, like by the time we got to Christmas, we were like, We had a series on joy to the world, but that was in the middle of a series on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Kingdom Living in a Broken World, but that actually was in the middle of our series on the Gospel of Mark. But I want you to know that we are back, okay? We have made it. We're coming through this pandemic, and we are back in the Gospel of Mark. Now, this Gospel is exactly what we need for living today. See, the Gospel of Mark... Its whole purpose is to show how the identity, mission, and calling of Jesus changes everything. And this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to just kind of take a look back to regroup, recalibrate, refresh, and take a look at the Gospel of Mark. Specifically, we're going to ask this question, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? This Gospel... Uh, has been used by God to fortify and strengthen the faith of millions of believers over the centuries. And it has also been used to call millions of people to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. If you want to know the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus, you want to give yourself to this book. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? I really, I want to give you the essence of it. It comes down to two major principles. First of all, you have to know 
who Jesus is. You've got to know who Jesus is if you're going to follow him. Several weeks ago, I had a rather fascinating conversation from a guy who is from the Middle East, grew up in a Muslim home, has immigrated to the United States. He is a U.S. citizen, extremely proud of that privilege. He is establishing himself in business for him and his family. He's actually doing quite well. He's an extremely hard worker. He's very smart. He also is on a quest to figure out God. And it was just a rather fascinating uh, set of circumstances that led us to have this conversation and really was interested to hear from him. He was one of those guys that like, wanted to talk a lot. You know how it is where it's kind of one-sided? It's great. And I wanted to know what he was thinking and learning about God. And he had come uh, from his study of the Quran, which he grew up in a Muslim home, so he's very familiar with the Quran. He was also uh, had studied Buddhism, and he had been reading in the Bible, and he actually knew quite a bit about Jesus. And what he had believe, come to believe is that there is a transcendent God. He was believing in this transcendent God, and that he was picking key principles or values from various world religions, and he had reduced these to like a code in which he was placing all of his faith. And this is what he thought relationship with God was all about, following this. And it was interesting listening to him. Like he would say, like, you know, in the Quran, why, it actually talks more about Jesus than Muhammad. And he's like, you know, like, Jesus, he never sinned. Muhammad, he did sin. In fact, he says, that's why Jesus could do miracles, because he never sinned, but Muhammad, why, he sinned, so that's why he didn't do miracles. And then he said... When it comes to Jesus, he says, he talked about his love, but he says it was his statement on the cross that he forgave all of these people. I'm like, I locked on, like, that's what we want to talk about. And I said, you know, that is really interesting that you highlight that because that actually shows us that Jesus is the one true God. You see, he is, he did forgive these people. How could he really do that? If it's going to be a true forgiveness, why, he would have to be actually truly man to pay the penalty for sin, but he'd have to also be fully God, right? And I, so I'm, I'm talking with him now, like, he had never thought of it that way, but then he kept like, yeah, he actually forgave all the people. I said, if that's not true of Jesus, that's a false forgiveness. That's how we know that he is the one true God, now, he didn't like, oh, wow, okay, well, I'm just going to believe in Jesus and Christ alone. It never usually, doesn't usually work that way. It's a process, but it had him thinking. Who is Jesus? If you're going to follow him, you need to know who he is, and that's why God has given us the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is like the Cliff Notes version. It's rapid. It's fast. It gives us all these snapshots of who Jesus Christ is. And let's just take a look. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. You may have just kind of blitzed through it, uh, where it says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I want you to know that everything we need to know about who Jesus is, is actually given to us in this verse. He says, it's the beginning of the gospel. The gospel is, that word means good news. And it's the good news of how the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ saves us from sin 
by our faith in him and unites us forever as one of his disciples. The good news that God has brought about forgiveness of sin and calls us into fellowship, relationship eternally with his son. The gospel isn't like, you've got to clean up your act and get yourself right, and then God is going to give you forgiveness. No, we earn, we do nothing. God does it all. The whole historical Christian premise is this, that it's the life, perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that it is the central event in cosmic and human history, and that our life makes sense Our purpose of being makes sense when we focus upon Jesus and have relationship with him. It's the whole story of how we fit into the world. All can be reduced down to our relationship with Jesus. And that is why it is the good news. It is the epical event in all of human history. It is the gospel. And that's what he's focusing on here in the beginning of the gospel. And why is this good news? Because God has given us, like he says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who is Jesus? Well, first thing you notice is that he is truly human. He has a human name. His name means Yahweh saves. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua, or we get our word, our name, Joshua. His name is Yahweh saves. It speaks of not only his identity, but it speaks of his mission. You remember uh, Joseph, when he was engaged to Mary, and uh, Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, and he's like, whoa, I had nothing to do with this. I'm going to divorce this gal. Do you remember an angel appeared to Joseph? and said, you are going to marry her, and you need to know this. That child has been placed in her through the working of the Holy Spirit. And then the angel said this, I've got a job for you to do. You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. You call him Yahweh saves. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And friends, That's what I need. I need someone that can relate to me and I can relate to. I need someone who is truly human, who can share in the fact that the reality of my humanity, my hopes, my dreams, my frustrations, the trials and the temptations that I go through, someone that can relate to all of me, all of my emotions, Happiness, anger, disappointment, fear, frustrations, hope, desire. And I tell you what, everything that we need and all that we could hope for is found in him. Who is Jesus? He is truly man. But notice he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' last name isn't Christ. Christ is a title. It's a messianic title. In Greek, it's Christos. In Hebrew, Messiah. And it means anointed one. Now, when, when this is written here, the Jews would automatically like, whoa, the Christ, the Messiah, because they would completely lock onto that because they were waiting for the Messiah. 
When it's the word Messiah, Christos, it means anointed, to anoint. Now, the Jewish people anointed uh, men for three different offices, prophet, priest, or a king. They would be anointed with oil, and that oil not only showed a designation that they were now called to this office, that oil also spoke of empowerment, that God would empower them. But when it came to Messiah, Christos, why that meant that it was all three offices, prophet, priest, and king. This would be the one who all of the scriptures were pointing to, this one who would save his people from their sins. The Messiah was one who was going to be an eternal king in the line of King David. All sorts of specificity, over 300 prophecies given about Messiah. And Jesus is the Christ. You know, that's exactly what we need. We need a savior, don't we? We are sinful. I'll, I'll just tell you about me. Sinful, selfish, self-oriented, trying to do life on my own, trying to live life independently. And I tell you what, it, you, you buy into all these idols, you find all this pain in life, you find how sin has created such a separation between you and God. I need one who can pay my sin and rescue my soul. And that's who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah. And notice the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This one is not only truly man, he's not only the promised Messiah, the Christos, the Christ, he is fully God. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. He is one in essence. God is triune. God the Father, God the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. And it is this one who is absolute deity. You see, humanity, every single one of us, you, me, we have a soul. We long to connect with the God of the universe. It explains so much religious behavior all around the world. And God has actually presented himself in the eternal Son of God. He is self-existent. He entered into humanity, the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, and he has presented himself. He is the God-man. And the Gospel of Mark, as we saw, as we've kind of walked through that, it would give us all these snapshots to show us his deity, to show how Christ has the power over demons, how he has the power over disease. He would, like, heal all these different people, all these different maladies. It shows how he has the power over sin, that this one could forgive sin because he's going to be the payment for sin. He's going to die on a cross and die in the place of sinners. But it also shows how he has the power over the Sabbath and even over the power, has power over all of the created forces like wind, rain, storms. He could literally speak or raise his hand and he could bring a storm to absolute tranquility and silence. Who is Jesus? He's truly man. He's the promised Messiah. He's fully God. And so you find that all in verse 1. And then just in rapid-fire fashion, Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verses 2 and 3, shows that this one is promised in the Scriptures. In fact, he starts quoting from the book of Isaiah. And then in verses 4 through 8, it shows that this Jesus 
has been prepared for by John the Baptist. And then he is actually, this is fascinating, but he is presented by the Father and the Holy Spirit. In fact, he's baptized. Look at it in verses 9 through 11. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why was he baptized? Jesus didn't sin. Why was he baptized? He was identifying with John's message of repentance of sin and believing in the Messiah. He was identifying with that message, and so he came to be baptized, and look what happened, verse 10. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. So here you have the Holy Spirit descending upon the Son of God. So you have Jesus. Now you have the coming of the Holy Spirit alighting on top on him. And then notice this, verse 11, and a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved Son. In you, I am well pleased. Don't you see the Trinity? Right there at the very beginning, you have the Spirit, the Son of God, the Father. This is my beloved son. I am so well pleased in him. And then immediately following this event, Jesus is then personally taken into the desert where he overcomes the devil and his temptations. At the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he now takes on the devil himself. Now, Satan knew that the Messiah was coming. He's fully aware of all the prophecies. He has done everything he can to deter people from believing in Christ, believing in the scriptures. It is the ongoing battle. And so Jesus is going to have this face-off with Satan. And Satan is going to tempt Jesus to exercise his divine powers apart from the Holy Spirit and outside of God's will. Mark just mentions the temptations, the gospel of Luke, and Luke chapter 4 walks through them. But Jesus will not succumb to the temptation. He will not operate outside of the working of the Holy Spirit. And he absolutely has come to do the will of the Father. He will not, despite all the solicitations that are made. And he comes, he enters into that desert as a newly commissioned king. But when he walks out 40 days later, he is the conquering monarch. And his ministry is going to begin. And that's exactly what we find. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? If someone were to ask you, well, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What would you tell him? Well, tell him this. First of all, you got to know who he is. Who is he? Why, he's truly man. He's the promised Messiah who pays the penalty for sins. And he's fully God. You want to follow Jesus? You got to know who he is. But second of all, you have to be trusting him with your life. Completely. And that's what you find right after these, these events. Jesus begins his public ministry and he calls people to himself to follow him. He demonstrates his absolute sovereignty. And notice what his message is. It's a recall to repentance and faith. So you look at it beginning in verse 14. It says this. Now, after John had been taken into custody, so that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee, and he's preaching the gospel of God. So he's got a message. He's a preacher. He's preaching the good news of God. And what is he saying? 
Verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He says, the time is fulfilled. All of history has moving to this one focal point. The epical event of all human history is the coming of the eternal son of God of Jesus And he is proclaiming that the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's sovereign reign, his rule has come. Why? Because the king is here. He's been declared. He has shown himself the conqueror in the desert, overcoming the temptations of the devil. And he says the kingdom of God is here because the king is here. Now, he's not going to set up his physical kingdom at this time. But he is establishing his reign and his rule in the hearts and the lives of his people. And that's why he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. You see that? He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance and belief, they work together like gears. They're not like like individual events, like, well, I'm broken and repentant, and man, I hate all these things that happen to me, and I have a sense of remorse. And then at a later, later time, you believe, actually, they work together. This is what it looks like in a human life. God's Spirit moves, brings about conviction of sin, efforts that you have made in the wrong direction, uh, things that you have said, behavior that you just you're grieved over. You realize that living life apart from God, that misses the mark. There's a sense of remorse. It's not regret. It's brokenness. But it's not just like, man, I, am, I feel bad. I feel destitute. I am discouraged over what I have done. But at the exact same time, it is a belief in Christ. It is brokenness over sin coupled with a belief that Jesus indeed is paid for this sin. That he is indeed God. He's the promised one. So there is a broken heart filled with hope in your heart. It's Jesus himself. And so whatever lifestyle that you were a part of, apart from God, whether it was filled with all sorts of wickedness and immorality, drugs, drinking, the whole gambit, um, maybe you were lying, you had all sorts of ethics that were broken on a regular basis that you know were wrong, And perhaps you saw yourself as a pretty decent person, maybe even a nice church person, but you're living life apart from God. I want you to know that it's the call is repentance. The word means to change 180 degrees. It's not just a change of mind like, whoa, I see that I'm going in the wrong direction. It is also leads to a change of heart and a change of life. It is repentance, a military term to turn 180 degrees. You're turning from self Sin to what? A trusting in Christ, a belief in him. And that's what Jesus preached. Do you want to know what the good news according to Jesus is? It's repent and believe in the gospel, the good news about him. Now, sometimes we think like, well, you know, folks that are, you know, worshiping idols and maybe they, you know, dancing around fire and they've got these animistic gods or, you know, they, they've got a false god, these idols out there in other countries, they're the ones that actually need to do this. 
But I want you to know, no matter what your background or where you live, the message is the same. Repent. You're like, well, hey, I'm a good old American. I got it. In God we trust on my money. Maybe you even grew up in a Christian home. What is it that I might need to repent of? I think I want you to know that anything that you have put in your life where you find your sense of security, salvation, hope, and peace, if it's not God and Jesus Christ, it's an idol. We are really good at taking good things and making them God things. So in America, our whole idea of success, climbing that corporate ladder, finding our sense of well-being by how much money we've got in our bank account or in our 401k, who our associations with, our accomplishments, our achievements, whether they be on the athletic field or in music or in, in education or in the working world, or it could even be your own family. If you're putting all your hope and sense and a purpose and peace and identity in that, even good things can become God things. And when that happens, that's, an idol- that's idolatry. You know what Jesus' message is to you and me? Repent, remorse over sin, and believe, believe in Christ. Whatever inferior substitute you've got in your life, Jesus says, turn from it. It can't satisfy, and it most certainly can't save. I'm it. And then with this message and this call to repentance, Jesus calls us to discipleship to follow him. So Jesus is proclaiming this gospel, repent and believe in him. And then notice in verse 16, he calls people to discipleship. Verse 16, he says, and as he was going along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea for they were fishermen. So here Jesus encounters these two fishermen. Now, Um, it looks like, as we've studied the Gospels, that up to about seven of the original apostles that Jesus called to follow him were fishermen. And if you think like, well, if you thought the the original apostles, they were just super weak, they had nothing going for them, they were just like drifters, they didn't know anything, they weren't educated, they weren't successful, that's really not the case. Uh, The apostles, these fishermen, these guys right here, They have a fishing business. To have your own business, just like a business owner today, you're probably going to have a degree of wealth, success. You likely have people that are working with you. Uh, You're going to have status. You're going to have a sense of accomplishment. You've got to be pretty smart if you're going to run your own business. And that's how it worked for fishermen. And Jesus approaches these two men, Simon and Andrew. Now, this wasn't the first time that he had encountered them. We find from the Gospel of John in chapter, John chapter 1, beginning like in verse 38, that Andrew was actually with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God. You're looking for the Savior, the perfect Lamb who's going to die and take the penalty for sin? He's it. Behold the Lamb of God. It was after that day that Andrew found his brother Simon and said, Listen. We have found the Messiah. And so it was several months later, Jesus had already started a relationship with them. They knew who he was. They, they identified, they could identify him. But what happens next is revolutionary. It's not, not that they just knew of Jesus. They knew this statement about him, behold, the Lamb of God. But notice what took place. Verse 17. They are just... Casting their nets at the sea, they were fishermen. 
And verse 17, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus uses a technical term. Follow me means to come behind me as a disciple. This, this would be very familiar in the vernacular of the Jewish people because rabbis, those who were those, the, the teachers of the law, they were kind of like the preachers of the day. Most of them were itinerant and they'd go from village to village and they had a group of disciples, followers of them, the Talmudim in Hebrew. And they were those where they would come to the rabbi and said, can I follow you? And they would ask if they could be a part of this traveling group to be a disciple, to learn everything they could about the disciple. Jesus, though, functions very differently. You didn't ask Jesus, hey, can I follow you? Jesus selected you and said, you follow me. And when Jesus makes the statement, follow me, they know exactly what this means. This means that I am going to be your follower. I'm going to learn everything I can. I'm going to set aside whatever so that I can have absolute full allegiance to you. Now, this doesn't mean that they have to forsake all their property, uh, leave their family. It may mean some changes, but we'll find out, like later in the Gospel of Mark, you know, Peter has a house. In fact, Jesus is in it. What it does mean is this. You absolutely have to have full allegiance to Jesus, and that's what he's calling him to. You follow me. And notice what it says there, verse 18. Verse 17, Jesus said, said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. I am going to change your entire orientation. You're pretty good at catching fish. You've made a whole life out of it. I'm going to teach you how to invest yourself in the lives of people, to be involved in my gospel. They are, they are responding to the gospel of repent and believe. They understand that Jesus is going to change their entire life, their entire orientation, and it's going to be around him and them making investments in his kingdom, fishers of men. And how do they respond? Look at this, verse 18. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. They left their nets. Those nets meant everything to those men. It uh, was their sense of identity. It's where they made their income. They identified with those nets. Like an athlete might identify with a ball, right? You've seen that. You've been in someone's home, like a great athlete, like maybe they're a really awesome football player, and they have these like footballs that are kind of like encased in these little cases, right? There's so much about that ball that speaks about them. So it is with the nets. That's where they made their money. That's with their identity. That's their status in society. They've got a new identity, and it's Jesus. And they left their nets. And do you see that? And followed him. Jesus said, I'm going to make you become fishers of men. And look at verse 19. Going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. So they got a pretty big company and outfit there. And went away to follow him. Why did Jesus call these fishermen? Was it because fishermen, I mean, think of them. They're strong. They understand teamwork. They're not afraid of adversity. They're like farmers. They're very optimistic. Even if they get skunked one day, they're like back at it the next day, right? We're going to catch fish today, right? They're hardworking. 
They're not afraid of challenges or storms. Was it that Jesus called them because, why, those are the qualities that Jesus was looking for and needed? Well, I want you to know that God was involved in shaping their lives, and he's going to use those experiences. If you're a fisherman, you can't be a wimp. You can't be bailing out all the time. You can't be afraid of adversity. He's going to use their experiences, but that's not why he's calling them. No, he's calling them because they have nothing to offer. He's going to show himself all-powerful in them. In fact, it's not because they're really super well-educated or they're ultra-spiritual. No. In fact, you know, they had prejudices. Did you know that? They were prone to be contentious at times. They struggled with pride and fear. You know what? They were just like us. Nothing special. Got some issues. Certainly sinful. But Jesus said, you know what? You follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He didn't say, follow me, and then at some point, you start figuring this out and become a fishers of men. No, he said, no, no, no. You follow me. I'm going to do this. I'm going to completely transform and change your life. I will make you a fisher of men. I am going to do this work in you and through you. It's not based on anything you do. You bring no merit. That's not how this works at all. Christianity is all about Christ seeking, pursuing, calling, and saving, and uniting us with him. You know what this is? This is discipleship. A simple definition of discipleship is this. It's the intentional and relational process of maturing Christ-centered believers and mobilizing them for ministry. That's what he's going to do with these men. You see, the goal of discipleship is to become like Jesus while following the leadership of Jesus. If you are really a Christian, that's what God's doing in your life. He's calling you into relationship, a deep, personal relationship with him, where you are going to become like Jesus as you follow the leadership of Jesus. And I want you to know that Jesus knew all about these men. When he said, follow me, he knew all that that was going to entail. These guys, they didn't. Jesus knew all about what they would face. They would face privation, pain, discouragement, persecution. They would struggle at times in their ministry to places of exhaustion. Jesus knew that they would face darkness that was so deep and so hostile that we'd be absolutely bewildered and not know what to do. Jesus knew that they would be misunderstood, attacked, maligned, Uh, They would face people that would betray them. Jesus knew that for the original 12, that all of them, with the exception of Judas and the exception of John, would die a martyr's death. Painful, excruciating. And they would die because of their relationship with Christ and their allegiance with his gospel. Why, Jesus knew all of that. But he didn't fill those men and tell them all that they could know. He told them all that they needed to know. You, follow me. And that's how it works with us. We don't know what's all going to happen in our life and all the challenges and triumphs and victories, but we do know enough just to follow him. But not only that, followers of Jesus, they may not know what's coming next or even why this is all happening. They just know who they're with. He's with them, and they're following him. 
But furthermore, they never really would understand when Jesus said, follow me, all that God was going to do in them and through them. They just knew that he had called them to be one of his disciples. You know, God was going to bring about an amazing transformation through these men, and it all begins here. For instance, Simon Peter likely saw himself as a tough, rugged fisherman, leader, company owner, successful. He understood how to catch fish, how to make money, how to run a family, how to run his uh, business. But I want you to know that this man that we learn a lot from in the Gospels, a guy who has a foot-shaped mouth, you know, and he, he sometimes he like really like comes after it. He, he says things that like, whoa, please, Peter, stop, you know, but he just keeps going, right? Why, God is going to bring such changes in this man's life. He's going to become a disciple maker, a fisher of men. Do you know that God is going to have this man, Peter, write two of the books of the New Testament, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Do you know that God is going to use this man to preach the very first message after the resurrection? You remember in Acts chapter 2, there's all these Jews that are all gathered around, and it's kind of a hostile environment, and Peter delivers a sermon. And when Peter speaks of Jesus, 3,000 people put their faith in Christ and are actually baptized on that day. And you know who gave the message? Peter. Where does it get started? Right here. You follow me. Peter is going to be used in the life of a young man who shows promise but has big issues. He's got abandonment issues. Like he, he's kind of, he ran when the going got tough. He was a failure. But Peter knew a lot about failure and how Jesus works even in our greatest failures. And he mentored this young man to such significant extent that the memoirs of Peter and all of his experiences that Peter had with Jesus, this man would record. You know what it's called? The Gospel of Mark, the very book that we're studying. And then, of course, there's like John, you know, like John, James and John. You know what Jesus calls them in Mark chapter 3? The sons of thunder, right? I mean, these, these are loud, brash. I mean, you know, it's like, what a gang, okay? These are like the meek and mild. These are kind of a little bit wild kind of guys. The sons of thunder. But God is going to take a guy like John. You see him right there? He sets aside the net. No longer the net. Now it's Jesus. God is going to use John to write the gospel of John. First, second, and third John. The final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation of all that is to come with the coming of Christ. Guess who writes that book? John does. It's the Spirit of God moving in him. It says of John, John is the only one who doesn't die a martyr's death. He suffered. I mean, he was on exile on the island of Patmos. At the end of his life, he's an old man as a pastor in Ephesus. And he would just walk around and saying, little children, love one another. How do you go from the son of thunder to the man who speaks of the importance of love? I'll tell you how. Jesus, you follow me. I want you to know when I... When I read this, the heart of Jesus' strategy, this gives so much hope to a guy like me that God, despite all my failures, frailties, sin, selfishness, right? There I am. Following Jesus, Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. Maybe you're like me. You're exact, fearful. You've got issues. You've got sin. We have a Savior. And his call is follow me.
And that's exactly what these men do. You know, if your world just kind of revolves around you, it's all about protect yourself, entertain yourself, take care of yourself. That's what our world tells us. It's all about you. Jesus says, no. It's all about me. You follow me. You see, following Christ is a way of life. And Jesus was going to change your direction. He, it's not about like, well, make Jesus a part of your life and that part keeps getting smaller and smaller, but hey, I'm in, you know. No, it's to absolute full allegiance. I'm in the center. Follow me. He wants to make you a fisher of men. That's what's going on. If you're resisting God's leadership in your life, how he's trying to give you opportunity, how you step up where you've got fears and you've got failures, but you've got Jesus and he's calling you to live by faith, that was always his plan, that you become a fisher of men. You ask him, he'll give you leadership and guidance. He gives you direction. He is wanting you to become a disciple maker. That's what it means to follow Jesus. He also will bring about development in your life. You're going to grow as a Christian. Your understanding, your knowledge, your convictions, how you behave, you're going to grow. It's going to be a slow process, a lot like a tree, but you are going to grow because Jesus is bringing about growth in your life. And there's all these decisions in life. Do you know that he wants to guide you? You're like, well, I'm wrestling with some pretty big decisions right now. How does he guide me? Let me tell you. Through his Holy Spirit, through his Holy Word, the Scripture, and through his holy people, Christians who love God, who have what's called wisdom. And God will move in your life and give you the answers you need. Sometimes you're like, hey, I'm not really sure, but I think this is what I'm supposed to do. Just do it. He's capable of closing doors when needed, but he's looking for hearts to follow him. And so following Christ is a way of life, and that's why God has given us this gospel. The gospel of Mark, it fortifies our faith to those who are facing danger and fear. And certainly that was the case of the original recipients, but friends, look what's going on now. I want you to know this gospel will make you strong. It is food for your soul. This gospel gives an account of the present circumstances that the believers were facing, was they were suffering. They're like, wait a second, we're following Jesus? We're in his kingdom? We're, all, we're identifying with him? Why are we being persecuted? Why did this guy lose his job because he's following Jesus? Why are they coming down so hard on us? Why are, why are people actually losing their lives because of their, follow, their faith in Christ? But Jesus is going to explain that's how the kingdom moves forward. Triumph and the moving forward of God's kingdom comes through trials and persecutions. You have no trials, no persecution. You know what that leads to? A bunch of complacent, weak Christians. Trials, that, why that brings about the development of fortitude, faith, and the kingdom advances. This gospel is written to encourage you, no matter what your failures, wherever you might be, God can take someone like Peter who abandons Jesus and denies him and turn him into a powerhouse through his spirit. He can do the same for you. God's not done with you. He hasn't given up on you. You're not set on the sidelines. He is calling you to follow him. And furthermore, this book shows us how to mature as followers of him and fulfilling his mission in the world. You want to be involved in what God is doing in the world? You want to join me? You want to join Jesus? This gospel tells us everything we need to know. Following Christ is, the, is a way of life. So remember how this book began? Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the beginning. You know what today is? You know what today is? It's the continuing. It's the continuing 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's, my friends, where we're at today. We're going to go back and we're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 11, beginning in next week. We're going to see Jesus moving to the cross, his love, his leadership. But you know, today, we have the privilege of hearing the stories, of hearing and seeing people who are willing and desiring to identify with Jesus and who are following him. So for all of you who are being baptized, if you want to just join me up here, okay? And um, let me grab the mic. I think you're going to be seated like right here. So as we're kind of getting set up here, I want you to know that um, baptism doesn't save you. What you're about to see doesn't make you a Christian. These people have come to a place of personal faith in Jesus Christ, and they are publicly identifying with him. And so we're going to begin by hearing the story of John Smith. And John, I want you to know it's an honor to have you with us. If you could, you want me to hold the mic for you? Please. Okay. When I was a young man, I had a very disturbing, disruptive, and damaging childhood. By the time I was 10 years old, and after experiencing my own father trying to kill me, I was then taken away from my parents and placed into a youth institution for my own safety. While I was there, I quickly adapted to rough environment and got used to protecting myself by fighting. One year later, I had an experience of punishment after trying to protect myself in a fight that involved me being put into a cold, dark, wet well about 12 feet deep. That wasn't a normally used form of punishment. This would be my new home and for how they deemed behavioral correction to work. And I would stay there first for 30 days straight. Then during a three-day release, I was part of another fight where I had to protect myself again. And I was put back there for another 30 days more. My life consisted of waiting for two sack lunches daily, and the lid would be closed again. I was young, heartbroken, scared into a survival mode, and I became convinced that this was all my life was ever going to amount to. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Psalms fifty-one seventeen. Fifty-two years of life passed by, and hardships continued to follow me by causing me to lose trust with most people in my life. I was then found by God's grace at a local food pantry, Shepherd's Heart, in 2019. They hosted Christian-based personal and spiritual growth classes on Saturday that I became aware of when I went to pick up my groceries for the week. At that time in my life, I was 63 and I was not yet receiving Medicare. My medical issues kept me from being able to earn any further income. Once I turned 65, I then was able to receive Medicare. It left me on a limited Social Security live-on. After the kind staff at Shepherd's Heart had befriended me and informed me that I could live on the income I was receiving, they showed me where to get extra 
any extra assistance I might need. And I was very moved and encouraged by the love they showed me. It was then that I was able to see that God's grace I was going to be taken care of. I would leave, I would like to leave as my inheritance that the greatest joy was finding my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. No temptation has ever overtaken you, but such as is come to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. First Corinthians 10.13 I felt it in my heart, and I knew in my soul that I was saved by Lord Jesus Christ on March 5th, 2021. After reading through 1 John with a Bible study group, I became acquainted with as a direct result of being helped by Stevens Ministries from Fellowship Bible Church. Overcome with joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, I wanted to share my faith with a close friend of mine who had received a diagnosis of cancer in his whole jaw. I've felt to lead him to seek out and know Jesus Christ personally the way I had been led to the Holy Spirit to do before to do so uh, to do before he went any further with his medical treatment treatment I'd like to thank Fellowship Bible Church for being true doers of the word and letting their faith be shown in the Lord's work especially in my case by his will and for his glory alone it is the fa- faithfulness in love of the fellowship church that led me to the baptism today and belonging to this church. Ever since I felt saved through Christ's love for me, through the Holy Spirit, I had been moved in my heart to help others discover the transforming power of following Jesus as our personal Lord and Redeemer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall now perish but have your eternal life. John 3.16. Tell you what, that is absolutely powerful. I understand why you're wiping your eyes. Don't ever forget the power of the gospel. So we are going to have an opportunity to have uh, some of these folks getting baptized here. So we're going to begin with Maddie, okay? So before you do that, though, I want to ask you, Maddie, have you placed your faith in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, and do you want to follow him as your Lord? Yes. You do. We're so proud of you. Well, let me baptize you. Maddie, because you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're so proud of you. You can stand right there. Okay. So, Caleb, I'd like to ask you, have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of sins, and do you really want to follow him for your whole life? You do. Awesome. It's a privilege to baptize with you, so you can step down one more here. Okay. Caleb, because you have placed your faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, Lucy, I would like to ask you, have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of sins, and do you want to follow him for your whole life? Yes. Okay. Well, let's have you. Okay. Lucy, because you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm so proud of you, Lucy. Because you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin and the Lord of your life, it is my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He does work. He does work miracles. Fellowship is all about. Absolutely. Let me, I tell you what, just like John said, this is what fellowship is all about. Let me tell you, if you're here today and you have never placed your faith in Jesus, you know who he is, why he came, and you want to trust him with your life, let me have you just pray with me now. So let's all bow our heads and pray. Lord,